Well, it's great to see you all this morning. Thank you for the way in which you have responded in this last week. Uh, last week we spoke, uh, you remember, quite a sober message about the nature of our partnership together in ministry. And uh, we looked at some of these things about imitation and simulation. The Lord obviously was speaking to us all about this work that we are harnessed together in, and uh, you've responded. And the offering last week was three times what it was the week before, and I think three times what it was the week before that. So that's an amazing uh, sign of God's mercy and grace, uh, both to us as a community and to the mission field that we're called to reach out to. Of course, uh, things will now, of course, uh, depend very much on how it is that our hearts continue to be softened towards the call of partnership in ministry and mission. And as we continue to share together in this call, in this discipline, in this commitment, then the Lord, I know, will not only provide for the needs of the congregation, but more especially, he will build a platform for us to reach the world. So thank you, and um, uh, much encouragement, I hope, comes to you, and much affirmation should be given to you. Well done, bless you. Today, we're going to continue in the Acts of the Apostles, and we're going to come back to this central issue of what it means to live in the presence of God. What might it be like for you and I to operate, to function like the first disciples, the first disciples who, because of their special relationship with Jesus and because of their preeminence in their initial understanding of what it means to, to embrace the good news of the Savior, led the early church in the works and the words and the ways of Jesus. What might it be like for us, as it were, to strip back the layers, the accretions of time, the overlaying institutional baggage of the church and discover again the freshness, the clarity with which this early Christian community in Jerusalem lived? I'm going to read to you um, from two portions of a very long passage this morning. I'm going to uh, just give you the quick narrative in between those two portions. Uh, but um, if you would follow me, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the street and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Now, this is an amazing 
series of accounts, a kind of patchwork of early experiences of this this first Christian community. There was miraculous demonstration. There was powerful proclamation. The people were drawn by a gravitation and their lives as they were saved evidenced transformation. This is an amazing community. But either we consign it to history and assume that this is a one-off and will never be repeated again, or we take it as a challenge to rediscover what it was that they knew and that they understand so that some of these things might be true of us today. Maybe not every day. They certainly don't appear to have been present every day, even in the Jerusalem church. But at least our lives, our community is available to such things. And the Lord will do them as he wills, according to his sovereign will. What happened after the events that are recorded there, which are kind of summary events, was that the apostles are taken prisoner. They're preaching in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade, which is on the side of the temple mount that looks down into the Kidron Valley, where all of the teachers and the rabbis and the the, the preachers and the, the, the debaters would stand. There would be thousands of people milling about. And in the midst of all of this, the Sanhedrin sent the temple guards to arrest the disciples. The disciples were taken and put in prison. They were brought before the Sanhedrin again. The Sanhedrin said to them, we've told you once, why are you still preaching in this name? Why are you bringing the disgrace of his death to our door? And with great boldness, Peter says, we must obey God and not you. Because it's impossible for us to stay quiet, having seen and understood all that we have seen and understood. The Sanhedrin, of course, wanted to put an end to them. But Gamaliel, the great teacher of the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul was known as Saul, a boy, Gamaliel stands up in the Sanhedrin and says, you know, there have been various different groups that have, that have emerged in Israel over these last few years, and none of them have come to anything. But mark my words, if this group represents something that God is doing, you're not going to be able to stop it. And if this group represents something of human origin, it will come to naught. So leave them alone. And let them go. Now, how do we know that these words were uttered in the way that they were? My my guess is simply this that Saul, later known as Paul, was there, his young disciple, a man who just a few months later would be present at the trial of Stephen, one of the other leaders of the early church, giving an account of the internal machinations of this group of Machiavellian leaders. Gamaliel's word wins the day. 
They don't want to let the disciples off scot-free, so they flog them, probably with the 39 lashes. And the apostles leave their presence rejoicing that they've been able to suffer disgrace for the name. For the name. They're delighted that their identification with Christ is such that Jesus has deigned to allow them to embrace his walk and his ways to such a degree that they, like him, suffer at the hands of evil men. It's kind of authentication, it's validation to them from him. They have fully identified with his name. They've, they've shared his words. They've lived understanding that they need to be not only recipients of his works, but, but doers of his works. And so signs and wonders are seen in their hands. They're not only those who do the ways of Jesus, but they've walked like Jesus. And Jesus has seen fit to say, yes, you are fully identified with me and I'm fully identified with you. And that means that you share in my glory. You share in my inheritance. You are co-workers with Christ. You are co-heirs with Jesus. And that means that you'll suffer. And so they come away rejoicing that they've been able to suffer the disgrace because of the name. And then it says this. Verse 42. Day after day. Now notice that. That can either be an indication of monotony or an affirmation of consistency. You decide which one. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Day after day. Day after day, they do the thing that they were said to have done on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.46 says, Every day in the temple and in their homes, there was a continuum of life. There was a gathering and there was a scattering. There was a place of celebration and worship and teaching and inspiration at the temple in Solomon's colonnade, which we as a church represent in the Sunday gathering here in-house and online. And in their homes, in their extended families, the Greek word oikos, meaning household, in their households, these networks of extended families were the place where the apostles the leaders of the church were functioning. They were functioning in the gathering and the scattering in the temple and in their home on the day of Pentecost. 
And here, months and months later, they're beaten, bloody, by the Sanhedrin. They're delighted that they can share in the disgrace of Jesus. But there is a default mechanism. There is a pattern that they fall back into. And it's not because they're legalists. It's not because they're committed to monotony. It's because they're smarter than you and me. You see, even though it is with diffidence I share this with you today, because I know, oh, wow, do I know the tendency we all have towards legalism, law, and control. There is a pattern that is the platform for the presence of power. There is a pattern of life that is a platform on which and through which the presence of God is able to mediate his power. There's a pattern that is a platform for the presence of his power. And what is the pattern? Well, you know that, so I won't mention it. What's this pattern? What's this pattern that is the platform for the presence of God's power? Maybe you don't want to know. Maybe you're content to live a kind of mediocre Christian life. I mean, most people are, aren't they? Kind of go to church, do their one hour a week, hope that the kids will get to heaven, and just kind of muddle through. Isn't that what everybody else does? So maybe you don't need to know how to live in the presence and power of God. Maybe you're just content to function like everyone else. Or maybe you'd like to live above the level of mediocrity. Maybe, maybe you'd like to be an eagle instead of a turkey. Occasionally flying just above the surface of your problems, but inevitably crashing back to earth or soaring on the winds of the Spirit, able to see with the eyes of faith further than others, living in such a way that people find that there's a gravitational field around you that draws them to you and to Jesus. If you want the latter of those two options, 
then listen carefully. If not, I hope you wake up refreshed. What's the pattern? Well, if we looked at it in gross, simple terms, you would have to say that the pattern is temple and household. Because that's the default mechanism that you see operating in the lives of the disciples. They're beaten by the Sanhedrin. They return to their normal lives and they operate immediately in a pattern that has been established on the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. So in simple, gross terms, it would appear that the pattern is gathering in the temple and meeting in the homes of the believers. But there is a deeper pattern if we will examine it further because it's a pattern established by Jesus. It's a pattern that is articulated by Luke. It's a pattern that you see all the way through the New Testament, but it's a pattern that is, that is quintessentially the way in which Jesus lived. And if you want to walk like him and walk like the first disciples, you will walk like this. And it is simply this. You retreat back to God. And in your retreat back to God, you spend time with him in his presence. Luke puts it like this. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Often withdrew, lonely, prayed. The next thing that you see in the account of Luke is Jesus coming from the lonely place into the crowded place. And as he comes into the crowded place, power is coming from him and healing them all. Imagine what that was like. Jesus is constantly in this rhythmic pattern of spending time with the Father. And then in his time with the Father, fully equipped and engaged with the open heaven that has been made open above him. So that as he moves under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, the open heaven moves with him. And as the open heaven moves with him, so it covers the people that his life encounters. That's exactly what's happening with Peter. Peter is simply operating under the open heaven. And the people know that there's something special. They know that there's something significant. They know, they know that there's something about Peter that's different about them. And if only they could come into his proximity, they don't even have to touch him. If only we could come into his proximity, if only we could come into his orbit, the power of God would do the thing that only the power of God can do. Now you can sit there at home 
or here in the pew and think that this is idle speculation, or you can assume that the Holy Spirit through Luke wrote this not for your frustration, but for your edification. Why does he, why does he see fit to write this? I mean, there are many, many things that Peter did. There are many, many things that are not accounted for or recorded in the Bible. But he wanted to make sure that this one was put down. And the other things. And the reason is, he wants us to learn how to live like this. It's kind of weird when you do live like this. And every so often, it kind of catches you by surprise. I was um, in the midst of a kind of revival moment in one of the churches that Sally and I were leading. And we were just laughing in the kitchen one day. And she said, I've got this terrible cold. And I said, and she said, she said, all these people are getting healed, and I've got this terrible cold. What's the deal? And I was walking through the kitchen with a cup of tea, just about to go outside the back door and into the sanctuary, which was just across the parking lot. And I said, just be healed. And she went, whoo! I said, you're right. She said, I just was. I said, just was what? She said, I'm completely healed. It's gone. I said, What? I'm not sure you're allowed to do it that way. I didn't pray or anything. See, my tendency was to still think that there was some kind of religious performance that I need to enact to ensure that somebody got healed. But of course, that's silly, isn't it? It's not me. I don't have to put my arch... Shakespearean voice and speak, thus saith the Lord, be healed in the name of Jesus. I mean, if you're going to get healed, it'd be cool to get healed that way, but that's not, the, that's not the way it works, is it? Or you put your hand in a particular way or you position your body in a, it's got nothing to do with that. How silly we are that we would even imagine it. It's entirely to do with the presence of the Lord. It's entirely to do with his power pervading our being. And what's the issue? Now listen carefully, because I'm about to share with you maybe the most important principle of all in relation to this particular subject. And it is the principle of indirect effort. The principle of indirect effort. The principle of indirect effort is articulated by Jesus over and over again. Here's an example. The disciples are worried about money. They're worried about food and clothing, money. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus doesn't make it any easier for them because he says things like, you know, blessed are you if you're poor and blessed are you if you're persecuted and blessed are you if people hate you. And they're going, wait, I'm not sure I feel blessed in any of those conditions of life. 
and they can feel the anxiety rising in them. And Jesus says, feeling anxious, feeling afraid, are you worried about where you may get your next meal from? Are you worried whether your children will go naked in the street? And then he says, look at the birds of the air. Look at the, look at the, the flowers of the field. And then he gives the principle. The principle of indirect effort. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. Get it? Two people got it. And they were over here. Did any of you get it? Oh, some of you did. Oh, that's great. Okay, so indirect effort. Does everybody get it? So you're focusing here, and something's happening here. Now, normally what we do is we focus here, and we hope that what we're focusing on happens. Don't we? The problem with that is that we tend to be self-centered, self-oriented, self-directed people. And so we don't know whether what it is that we're looking at that we're so focused on is actually the thing that we need. It's simply the thing that we want. Jesus says, your heavenly father knows what you need and he will give them to you. So seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now that principle of indirect effort is the most important principle that you will ever learn in relation to the presence and the power of God. Because if you look for the presence and power of God, it will be like chasing the soap in the bath. Ever tried to chase the soap in the bath? Especially when you've got suds on top of it. Aiden, he thinks it's awesome. So you've got suds on top of the bath, maybe a candle burning. Maybe a bit of music. Maybe a bit of music. <laughs> And then you think, I need to clean between my toes. I need some soap. But where's the soap? There's no, there's no, there's no. The same is true of the presence and power of God. You see, the disciples completely understood this because they watched it articulated in the life of Jesus continuously. Jesus didn't think about the power of God. So much so, so much so, that in each of the Gospels, the first three Gospels, in each of the first three Gospels, when Jesus has been on retreat with his disciples, he comes ashore 
a man who's a ruler from the synagogue comes and says, quick, my, my daughter's dying. You've got to come and help me. So they follow Jairus and they're going through the crowd. There's thousands of people around them all pressing into him. And Jesus is trying to follow Jairus as Jairus is anxiously trying to lead him to his home where his daughter is breathing her last breath. And someone in the crowd reaches out and touches the edge of his robe and Jesus stops. Now you have to listen carefully to what Jesus says next to understand the nature of power because it has nothing to do with us straining for power. Jesus says, who touched me? Peter said, Lord, the crowd is pressing in on you. What do you you mean? He said, I know that someone touched me because I felt power go out from me. In other words, it was not an act of volition on the part of Jesus. Jesus was simply the conduit through which the power was released. Yeah? Jesus didn't heal the woman out of volition. The power came through him Because he was the conduit of power. Now, if you're the conduit of power, what's the, what's the issue that you need to deal with? If you're a conductor of power, what's the issue you need to deal with? Connection, yeah? Then what? Distribution at the far end, yeah. What about the... So think of it as a cable. Okay, we plugged it in, and we've got distribution at the far end. What, what, if you think about the cable, you're the cable. But what's the issue that you have to think about as far as the cable's concerned? Say that out loud. Everybody say that. Resistance. Say it. Say it again. Say it one more time. It's resistance is the issue, isn't it? You see, this is what Paul says. He says, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and established him as Lord of glory is resident in your life. Can you have any more power? No. Is there any more power? No. Is this the greatest power? Yes. Is this the power that can fling galaxies into naked space? Yes. And that power is resident in you. And if that power is resident in you, then the only issue 
is how does the power get out? And therefore, the only question is how do I resist, how do I reduce the resistance? And so now I'm going to tell you, by indirect effort and by establishing patterns in your life that reduce the resistance and maintain the reduction of resistance. And simply those patterns are these. You retreat to God every day. And at every moment in the day that you're able to. And you establish these patterns so that every day is not a new invention for you. Do you know what? I'm old and I've spoken to thousands of people. The thing that shocks me more than anything else is how many Christians reinvent their day every day. What kind of craziness is that? Now, part of it is to do with the way that you've been taught. Because you've been taught, you know, it's you know, every day and guilt's the big issue. And so you have to deal with the guilt. And then once you've dealt with the guilt, and then you can kind of get on with re reconstructing your life because it was obviously destroyed by the guilt of the day before. Except that the New Testament says something different to that. It says, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Thanks be to God, there's no condemnation. So you don't have to reconstruct the day and new every day. His mercy is new every day. Not your world is new every day. His mercy is new every day. His grace is continuous every day. There is no condemnation at any part of the day. And so you can develop a pattern of life that allows you to key into the source of the power. You can, by the simple practice of structured patterns of, of spiritual engagement, reading your Bible, praying, reflecting, being in solitude, fasting, Fasting is simply saying no to the other voices in your body that would, that would conspire to prevent you hearing the voice of God. That's all that fasting is. The simple disciplines, the movement to God, the discipline of speaking with him and listening to him, Allowing that to restructure your internal life so that your internal life is looking to him and not looking to the needs and the issues and the, and the questions of your life. Even to the needs and the questions of your desire for a changed character. Your changed character doesn't change because you want it to. Your character changes because God changes you. Everybody get that? If you could change yourself, Jesus didn't need to die. You can't change yourself. 
And so we focus on the one who can change us. So often we're picking around. We're we're picking the scab over and over again. Instead of allowing him to change us. It's indirect effort. We focus on him. And guess what? He does the work. And we learn through the patterns and the structures of our life. That we're connecting to the source of all that we need. And as he adjusts us internally, he's removing the resistance so that all that he is can flow through all that we are to all that the world needs because the other end of the pattern is that you engage with the world. That you allow your life to touch the world. And so structure becomes the basis for the spontaneous outpouring of God's love. God wants us to be spontaneous, but the spontaneity comes out of the structure. God wants us to be recipients and conduits of power, but the power comes through the platform, and the platform is the pattern of your life. There is great freedom in knowing that you as a child of God live without condemnation and that God is able to touch and transform the lives of the people around you. There's great freedom, but the freedom comes in a framework. Now here's my fear. In your households and house churches, you're going to go away and you're going to start focusing on patterns and structures and frameworks and start wagging fingers at people who don't have the right ones and start building legalistic frameworks and and law and control. Because that will get you nowhere. If you want to be a turkey, do that. If you want to be an eagle, listen carefully. You live the pattern. You live the structure. You allow the framework to be the integrated pattern of your life. So that you have a bad day and things go wrong and the boss at work is terrible and it kind of throws you off. But you've got a default that draws you back into the way of your life. And what is the way of your life? The way of your life is the word of Jesus. The works of Jesus. The ways of Jesus. That mean that you walk with and walk like Jesus. It becomes your life. It's not a checklist. It's not, it's not some kind of It's not some kind of constant nagging voice that tells you that you failed. It's a pattern that sets you free. Let me finish with this illustration. Our family loves dogs. We have a dog currently that is, I mean, according to all accounts, 
and testimonies is the finest dog in the world. He's called Barnabas, and he has a ministry of encouragement. Now, sometimes his encouragement is overwhelming, and I have to tell him to stop encouraging me. But Barney is amazing. And he is uh, the dog that replaced Charlie. And Charlie replaced Holly. The reason we called her Holly was because we decided we'd get a dog for Christmas. We didn't tell the children. The children were very small at the time. You can ask Rebecca about it. The kids were small at the time. And we, um, we'd heard that Mrs. Hopkinson's, uh, who had a kennel, had the best yellow labs anywhere. They'd won the kennel prize. You know, it's called Crufts in England. And she was on television uh, with Pedigree Chum, because that was the sponsor of her kennel. And so she was like, you know, she was the bee's knees, this lady. Amazing. So I called her up and I said, um, Mrs. Hopkinson, I've heard amazing things about you. I'm, um, I'm the Reverend Breen. I thought, I better use some kind of credentials, because otherwise she's not going to listen to me. Um, and I'd like, a, I'd like a puppy, if at all possible. She said, um, <clears throat> yes, well, uh, you can come for an interview um, uh, next week. I, I thought, I said, I'm sorry. Did you say interview? She said, oh, yes. She said, yes. We interview all of our prospective parents. Okay. And what does the interview entail? She says, well, I'll, I'll you know, obviously check you out and make sure that you're the right kind of candidate. And then I'll put you on the list to see whether... You know, it's going to be possible. So I put my best jacket on, polished my shoes, went to Mrs. Hopkinson's. And I mean, the place is like dog city. So I I get into her kitchen. She makes me a cup of tea. It's the basic thing that English people do. So she makes me a cup of tea. And she says, now, Reverend Breen, she said, "Um, why would you like one of my dogs? So, well, you know, we've got children and we've always had dogs and, you know, I'd, I'd really like one, if it's all possible. She said, um, she said, how many hours a week do you work? I said, well, you know, I'm a clergyman, I work a lot. She said, yeah. She said, is, there, is, uh, is the home going to be empty for a lot of the day? I said, oh, no, no, the home's always, I mean, I work a lot from home. My wife works a lot from home. The kids are, so she said, okay, so you think that the home will have people in pretty much all the time? I said, yeah. She went, okay, that's a good start. I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I've never had anything like this. I thought, maybe it's easier to become a stockbroker in London or something. (laughs) So we went through a whole nother kind of series of, interview questions, and then she took me out to the place where the newest litter of puppies were. And they, they had a little door, and they all put their heads over the top and looked out, and I said, I'll take all of them. <laughs> and she said, um, I'll, uh, I'll contact you nearer the time. And of course, you know, buying one of these dogs is like a 
major financial undertaking because it's, you know, it's one of these expensive dogs. So we had to save up. And uh, one day the call comes and uh, she said, well, it's, uh, it's getting near the time. And she spoke to Sally. She said, uh, it's getting near the time. Uh, we need to arrange for the pickup. And Sally said, well, it's near Christmas. Obviously, my husband's really busy, so I'll be coming to pick up the dog. Mrs. Hopkinson was kind of quiet on the phone. She said, um, I, don't, I don't want to be offensive, Mrs. Breen, but are you the head of the house? She said, well, I mean, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, well, are you the leader of the house? Sally said, I think probably all of us would agree my husband is. She said, well, I can't release the dog to you then. So Sally put the phone down and came back to me. She said, okay, I have no idea what we're supposed to do now. What is this? So I call her and I say, Mrs. Hopkins, my wife says that you won't release the dog to her. She said, well, I won't. There's lots of people who want your dog. You can't have it. I said, okay, just explain to me. She said, look, do you want Holly to be happy? I said, yes, with all my heart. She said, the only way for your dog to be happy is that the leader of the pack brings the dog with formality into the home and introduces the dog to the family in the way that I tell you. You'll never have to train her if you do this. I said, okay. It was like two days before Christmas. She said, now, I want you to come and I want you to bring a little snack and a T-shirt that you wore yesterday. I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not arguing now. I get to the, I get to the farm. I see Holly. She's the sweetest dog you've ever seen. She says, take the T-shirt, wrap her in the T-shirt, give her the treat, and put her in the base of the passenger seat footwell. She'll stay there. So I did that. And she told me that when I came to the home, I was to introduce her to Sally, and then each of the children in turn, and then go and stand in her bed and then stand out of the bed and put her in the bed and show her where her bowl was. And she said, you'll never have to train her. She'll just do what you tell her. Now, I thought that this was all kind of mysticism and rubbish. We never had to train her. She just literally did everything we told her to do. It was amazing. And she was the happiest dog you've ever met. She was a Christian, everything. <laughs> She used to come to church with me every day. She licked everybody in the prayer meeting. She had the funnest time of any dog ever. And every day that we'd take her to, to church, she would bark on the driveway on her way down. to. She just thought it was the best thing ever. She had the most fun. Now, she used to steal from garbage cans and stuff like that. But that we, you know, we put that on one side. She had a framework in which she could be free. That's what I'm talking about. She didn't have to think about it. She just did it. 
That's what we need. The reason that I pray in the morning with the people here every day is because that's what I've done for 40 years every day. The reason that I open the Bible in that time and look at the passages that I'm going to be preaching on on Sunday every day is because that's what I've done every day for 40 years. And that's why the Lord is able to flow through the pattern because it's the platform of the presence of his power. Let's pray. Lord, deliver us from law, but teach us your ways. And Lord, as we function in your ways of retreat and engagement, of prayer and proclamation, Lord, may we live above the level of mediocrity. May we soar like the eagles. May we see further than other people. May we, Lord, be those who others come to, even not really understanding why, but knowing that there is a presence that can heal them. Lord, may this be true of our lives and the lives of all your people. And as your people, we say boldly, amen.